On the evening of July 11, 1979, a simple lawyer is returning home when he's shot dead in the Milan streets. It would be one of the numerous murder assassinations carried out during the years of lead. It could have come from the left, right, or the mafia, or indeed, any combination. But the lawyer's name was Giorgio Ambrosoli, and it was fairly clear who was responsible. Ambrosoli had received some nine threatening phone calls in recent months, increasing with intensity. The calls came with such frequency that Ambrosoli attempted to laugh them and their anonymous caller off, calling him the little guy at the end of the line. Made on January 12, 1979, the last call was particularly vicious. I wanted to save it, but from now on I can't save it anymore, because you are only worthy of dying killed like a cuck. You're a cuck and a bastard. The threats were enough to worry Ambrosoli to the point of writing his wife. Dearest Anna, there's no doubt that in any case I will pay a very high price for the task. Forty years, and suddenly I've been involved in politics in the name of the state, and not of the party, and have always operated only in the interests of the country, obviously only creating enemies for myself. But there's a state, and then there are states within a state. Ambrosoli increasingly found this as he pursued the task with which he was entrusted, and which he believed to be a part of his duty to the Italian Republic. In 1974, with the collapse of the financial empire of the notorious mobbed-up banker-lawyer Michele Sindona, Ambrosoli had been given the onerous task of liquidator. Through mountains of paperwork, he uncovered a whole nebulae of shell companies, pass-throughs, and offshore fronts designed to ferry liquidity out of the bank accounts of Italian depositors and into the pockets of high-flying mafia syndicates, drug traffickers, and of course, the occult powers of Propaganda Due, often considered a kind of underground state in itself. For this, Ambrosoli had to pay, but in murdering the liquidator of Sindona's collapsed house of cards, the Italian underground brought about an even larger reckoning at the turn of the 1980s that would bring down its foremost players and cause a massive transformation in the political landscape of the 20th century. Hi everyone, I'm Alexander Reed Ross and welcome to the Years of Lead Pod. In this episode, we're going to return to the Sindona Affair, covered in the first part of the series, and we'll describe what happened to the infamous banker as he scrambled to recollect his financial prospects and keep what remained of the secret world of propaganda due under wraps. Now I'm going to be in New York City when this comes out, only there for a few days, but it means that this episode's going to be a little bit shorter. So Ambrosoli had been in charge of the liquidation of Sindona's Banca Privata after the inflation crisis brought by OPEC's oil embargo forced his network of banks to come to terms with their debts. This caused a liquidity crisis generated by the simple fact that Sindona had funneled his investors' deposits into his and his allies' pockets through a maze of offshore companies without any accountability or oversight. Always keeping a bare minimum of finances in his network while circulating the rest among his close circles of conspirators, often for purposes of bribery. The thing was, of course, that this circle included some of the most staid and traditional powers of Italy. 
There was Roberto Calvi, the introverted and self-conscious numbers man climbing up the ladder of the conservative Milanese institution, Banco Ambrosiano. And then there was Paul Marcinkus, who controlled the Bank of Religious Works, the Vatican Bank responsible for the church's finances. Through these vessels, Sindona stood on the top of what parliamentarian and head of the Commission on Propaganda Due, Tina Anselmi, called the inverted pyramid of this underground state or counter-state. I'll quote at length from that commission, active from 1978 to 1981, to give you a sense, in case you missed the Sindona Affair episode, of the extent of the financial and political powers wielded by Propaganda Due, for which Sindona's banking empire served a vital purpose. The examination of the events and connections that can be established between them lead to two conclusions. The first is in relation to the breadth and gravity of the phenomenon which involves at the every level of responsibility the most qualified aspects of national life. We have in fact found that the Pédoué Lodge enters as an element of decisive weight in financial events, the Sindona and the Calvi ones, which have affected the Italian economic world in a decisive way. In these cases, it was not just the collapse of two private credit institutions of national interest, but two financially significant situations in an international context, which raised, with particular reference to the Ambrosiano group, serious political difficulties which were not less than economical to the Italian state. In both of these events, Lodge Pedue was placed as a privileged meeting place and center of intersection of a series of relationships, protections, and silence that have allowed its development according to the pathological aspects that, in the end, were no longer possible to contain. In this financial context, Loggia Pedue has also acquired control of the largest Italian publishing group, implementing, in the sector of primary importance of the daily press, an operation of concentration of newspapers not comparable to other similar situations, although attributable to preeminent centers of economic power. Finally, these operations, as we've seen, were accompanied by a reasoned and massive infiltration into the most important decision-making centers, both civil and military, and constant pressure on the political forces. The second conclusion we've reached is that in this vast and complex operation, a general plan of undeniable political value can be recognized. That is, a design that not only has intrinsic political value in itself, but responds in its genesis, as in its ultimate goals, to objectively political criteria. We've seen how Licio Gelli made use of an instrumental technique with respect to everything he approached during his career. This because the underlying philosophy of the political conception of control, which uses everything and answers to no one except itself, as opposed to the government which exercises power, but is at the same time at the service of those who are subjected to it. But he who exploits everything is actually an instrument himself. This is, in fact, in the logic of its theoretical conception and its practical construction, the Propaganda Due Lodge, 
a neutral instrument of intervention for control and conditioning operations. When we want to use a metaphor to represent the situation, we can think of a pyramid whose summit is made up of lichio jelly. However, when one wants to give a meaning to this pyramid, it is necessary to admit the existence above it, to remain in the metaphor of another pyramid which, inverted, sees its lower vertex precisely in the figure of lichio jelly. This is in fact the point of connection between the forces and groups that identify the ultimate goals in the upper pyramid and the lower one, where they find practical implementation. What forces are at work in this structure, unknown to us, we can't know, beyond the identification of the relationship that binds Lichio Jelly to the secret services. Certainly, the Pédoué Lodge delivers to our meditation a political operation inspired by a pre-ideological conception of power, coveted in its most direct and brutal effectiveness. A cynicism of projects and of works that bring to mind the Leopardi maxim, according to which everything must change so that everything remains as it was. The first essential defense against this political project, a metastasis of the institutions, a negator of all civil progress, lies precisely in taking painful note of it, in warning, without hypocritical inflections, the danger that it represents for us all since it strikes with indiscriminate, perverse effectiveness, not parts of the system, but the system itself in its most intimate reason for existence, the sovereignty of the citizens, the last and definitive seat of the power that governs the Republic. So, to the Parliamentarian Commission report published in 1981, Pédoué represented an inverted pyramid directly tied to the above-ground forms of doing politics, but always subverting it. The commission notes that it will not understand the ways this inverted pyramid linked to the above-ground pyramid operated except for an understanding of the links between Pédoué and the secret services of Italy. And it was precisely these ties that Ambrosoli was beginning to unravel. In the mid-1970s, Ambrosoli was mounting a bold campaign to explain what had happened to so much capital within the Italian banking industry and why. In 1973, Sindona couldn't shift his money around without fresh deposits in the Banca Privata Finanziaria and the Banca Unione, which he'd already drained. He used these things called trust deposits, which you could then, if you're a bank, invest in your own corporations, whereas you couldn't do that by Italian law with normal deposits. And so he used those to fill up these front companies who would then deliver the cash back to him. And in his last-ditch effort, he pretended to recapitalize his shell company, Finambro, with an increase from 1 million to 160 billion lire value. He promises the Bank of Italy's governor, Carli, and general director, Paolo Baff, that the refinancing of Finambro with so much money is going to bring foreign investors to Italy. But it was 
It was clearly a lie. Ambrosoli was showing how that how these moves in 1973 convinced Cotterly, but not the Treasury Minister Ugo Lamalfa, a guy who could be considered a centrist in the Italian political system, former member of the Action Party, and supporter of close ties with the United States. Lamalfa moved to the Republican Party of Italy later and supported Aldo Moro's historic compromise, but he also kept up the hardline policy with the government of national solidarity against negotiations with the Brigate Rosse. In 1973, he'd resisted the Bank of Italy's capitulation to Sindona's ideas, but the courts pushed it through regardless. In December of that year, Sindona hosted a gala at St. Regis Hotel for Giulio Andreotti, who in turn supposedly hailed Sindona as the savior of the Italian lira. Andreotti, for the rest of his career, would suffer devastating attacks for this event, which revealed at the very least his acceptance of association with such a scandalous man. However, also in attendance was an A-list of U.S. financial leaders, so he always had a fallback excuse. However, Andreotti could not ignore that a later inquiry found Sindona to have donated 15 million lire per month to the Christian democracy. On top of this, he also paid out 2 billion lire in three installments, which he called his financial bridge. In early 1979, it was just coming to light through the work of the financial police that this was a super bribe in order to get a friend of Andreotti's, Mario Barone, in as the managing director of the Banco di Roma. It wasn't just Andreotti who hooked up Barone for Sindona in 1974. Amintore Fanfani, then the secretary of the party, is supposed to have put forward the same recommendation. As a result, $100 billion flooded into Sindona's parched system through a Banca d'Italia loan, and another 100 billion lire channeled into Finambro. Sindona simply merged his two practically bankrupt banks into Banca Privata Italiana, which was already doomed. When Banca Privata Italiana went under, in September of that year, Giorgio Ambrosoli was put in charge of figuring out what went wrong. Charges were brought against Sindona in October, but he was able to flee to Switzerland and then the Hotel Pierre in New York City. You might be wondering here, who the hell did Sindona know in New York City where he has apparent protection? Well, I'll get into that. Sufficient to say that he had some troubles with extradition to Italy, but since the New York Attorney General was also filing charges for the failure of Franklin National in the United States, one of the organizations that he purchased, it was wrongly believed that Sindona was undergoing a kind of double jeopardy. In October, Ambrosoli figured out that all the shares of Sindona's front, Fasco AG, are deposited with his Geneva structure, Finabank. And since he's the liquidator, Ambrosoli can gain access to Fasco's accounts. This helps him then access the labyrinth of companies functioning under Fasco's umbrella, taking him to a whole series of new revelations. 
Sindona would blame politicized magistrates, outright communists, in a move that went on to become a trademark of the fascist aversion techniques in the aftermath of the Bologna massacre. He wrote to Andreotti that, The extradition proceedings under evident pressure from Italian judges who continue the investigations established on the basis of a preconceived and preordained guilt on my part have now begun. The heavy bail imposed on me and my family has exhausted the sources of financing that should have allowed the continuity of my defense. Meanwhile, Andreotti had numerous meetings with a lawyer named Guzzi from 1976 to 1978, probably concerning this issue. Guzzi also met with Sindona a dozen times over this period, along with Licio Gelli three times. Sindona wrote to Andreotti, illustrious and dear president, in the most difficult moment of my life, I feel the need to address you directly to thank you for the renewed feelings of esteem that you've recently expressed to mutual friends. Guzzi later admitted in court that these mutual friends were members of the Italian-American community and that these meetings were part of efforts to delay extradition to Italy. Sindona's defense is able to get Edgardo Sogno and Licio Gelli to submit sworn affidavits in his favor, saying, of course, he's the victim of a communist persecution led by Ugo Lamalfa. Of course, Sogno and Gelli have both been involved in the efforts to subvert Italy's parliamentary republic, even working together during 1973 and 74 to plot an ill-fated coup attempt. Supposedly, Gelli connected Sogno to the Carabinieri division in Milan, the notorious Pastrengo division, which actually shocked Sogno with its leader's extreme suggestions on how to carry out the coup. Well, because of Ugo Lamalfa's history with the Action Party, the U.S. suspected that perhaps these affidavits held water. In fact, it looks like Sindona and Andreotti personally met up in Washington, D.C. in 1977, but it looks like Andreotti's intervention wasn't really working. Sindona needed alternatives to rescue his prospects, perhaps by bailing out his finances before it was too late. Sindona's rescue plans were, however, rejected by Mediobank's head, Enrico Cuccia, whose parents ironically came from the same town in Sicily as Sindona. At this point, by 1978, Sindona had effectively gone mad, unable to accept what was already happening and completely unable to assess how to save himself. A lobbyist and associate of Sindona's named Delegratan states that he, quote, used to hysterically alternate between laughing and crying, speaking in an incoherent and irrational way most of the time, and obviously fantasizing a lot. Given Cuccia's refusals, Sindona turned to alternative routes, namely a man named William Joseph Arico, a mob soldier who he finds through low-level sergeant Robert Venetucci. And now we come to those protecting Sindona in New York. For a long time, Sindona had been involved with the Sicilian Mafia, and conveniently, the faction of the Sicilian Mafia most closely aligned with Giulio Andreotti's political current within the Christian Democrats. That is, 
the faction discussed in the most recent episode under Stefano Bontate, who had lectured Andreotti in 1979 about the contingency of his support in Sicily on their goodwill. According to Mafia Pentiti, coming forward in the 1990s, the Sindona network was used by the Bontate clan of Cosa Nostra to process and launder the money made through the drug trade developed through the Gambino crime family based in New York City. As previously noted, the Sicilian-American mafia based in NYC also traded in fake bank securities, for which FBI investigators tracked them straight to the Vatican Bank during this same period in question. But here, Sindona was really getting into a lot of trouble. Sindona had channeled mafia money into his crooked network, basically destroying their capital. So he owed Cosa Nostra a big debt, on one hand, and on the other, they had every interest in both retrieving their lost funds and destroying those attempting to connect Sindona's dots. That is, namely, the unfortunate liquidator Giorgio Ambrosoli. Marino Monoya, for instance, recalled that, quote, the only interest he had towards Sindona was constituted by the fact that he had invested the money of Stefano Bontate and also those of Totuccio Inserillo and John Gambino. So it's the mafia that responds to Sindona's cry for help, with Arico and his associate, mid-level Bontate clan adherent Giacomo Vitale, who was married to Bontate's sister. The first intimidating effort came to Enrico Cuccia, of Mediobank in 1977, including a threat to kidnap his daughter. In the meantime, Sindona also starts to blackmail Roberto Calvi with the help and support of Luigi Cavallo, a friend of the pod, also known as Il Provocatore. Cavallo, as we know, has a long history of fuckery, having been part of an ultra-left partisan group and then flipping to the right enlisting in industrial counterintelligence efforts, and then linking up with Edgardo Sogno. It's kind of incredible, actually, how these terrible people find each other. These efforts involved plastering walls with posters about the quiet and introverted banker Roberto Calvi, publishing discrediting articles about him and sending him threats by mail. Through these means... They got Calvi to give Sindona half a million bucks in March 1978. In November 1978, Arico carried out an arson attack on Cuccia's home. The following month, Vitale began to terrorize Ambrosoli, using the same name, Cuccia, while telling him that, if extradition is granted, you will not survive. The eighth call came on January 12th, and about six months later, Arico murdered him in the streets of Milan. This will have immediately sent a chilling message to the real Cuccia, but for Sindona it was not enough. He needed another last-ditch effort. Around the same time as the Ambrosoli murder, Sindona hatches a plot to stage his own kidnapping, in collaboration with the Bontate and Gambino Syndicate. Sindona sets things up with Joseph Macaluso of the Gambino family 
at the Conca de Oro Motel in Staten Island on July 18th. Macaluso's employee, Anthony Caruso, buys tickets to Vienna where he takes Sindona. On August 6th, Sindona flies to Athens, meeting mafia handlers to take him through Italy by sea and finally Palermo. Michele Crimi, an old friend of Sindona's who splits his time between New York City and Italy, goes to Athens to help him through the process, and together they draft communique number one, addressed to Sindona's family. Macaluso hires a messenger to bring the message to NYC, where it arrives on August 13th and causes a stir. Sindona had been kidnapped. The day before the letter's arrival, August 12th, Vitale touches ground in Athens with a sailor aboard a yacht who is, with Vitale, a member of the Palermo-based Centro Attivita Masonique Esoterique Accettate. But they scrap the yacht plan because the Coast Guard is very violent and they take an ocean liner to Brindisi from which they go to Palermo, where he stays with a teacher named Francesca Paolo Longo. It's here, over the next month, that Sindona meets with the gang, Pontate, Inzarillo, and John Gambino himself. While he's in Palermo, Sindona writes a spate of letters that get sent out with Crimi back to the city, including a letter to his lawyer friend, Guzzi. He writes... Evidently, they've overestimated me here and believe that I know everything about everyone and that I have elements or documents of such importance as to create important involvements. I've already made it clear that I can give some documents which I can only come into possession of if released. On the other hand, the people involved have never raised a finger to defend me and I don't feel like protecting them in any way on a moral level. On the list of 500... I pointed out that such a list does not exist if one intends to refer to the names of the people who have deposited specific sums abroad in the banks I control. The names of the depositors can be obtained from the pro tempore managing director and from the current liquidators who have had or are receiving a special book in which the correspondence between accounts, numbers, and names can be noted. According to judicial investigations, the list of 500 was apparently a list of people who had sent money to Finabank, receiving illegal funds in return. It seems clear that people in the know would have interpreted this as an effort to blackmail the people on the list. So while this is happening, to keep the mobsters interested in supporting him, Sindona gets them hooked on this idea of a Sicilian secessionist coup plot. He promises them that a U.S. aircraft carrier is on its way, preparing to support the coup on behalf of international Freemasonry. Apparently, they were pretty psyched about this until September, when Jelly arrived in Palermo and explained to everyone that Sindona was totally full of shit. But it's incredible that he was able to convince them of such an elaborate fabrication. Perhaps this also indicates a degree of how Propaganda Due's participants were enrolled in so many half-assed coup plots within the context of extensive blackmailing, the circle of which would increase 
with every corruption and plot. Longo calls Guzzi, the lawyer, pretending to be this recently formed Italian-American proletarian armed group that's kidnapped Sindona and threatens to take Sindona back to the peninsula where, quote, he will be tried for his crimes and will have to tell everything. Of course, Sindona was no longer in NYC. He was in Palermo, and on September 6th, John Gambino finally shows up and meets Sindona. In subsequent letters, Sindona comes up with a name for his would-be kidnappers, the Proletarian Subversion Committee, or the Proletarian Subversion Group. And he tries to get Guzzi to carry out their wishes, sending him a photo of Sindona with the usual placard around his neck. As this is happening, Sindona's mob buddies are also threatening the banker Cuccia. On top of this activity, they, dis- they decide to squeeze Roberto Calvi even more. On September 24th, Sindona moves to a villa in the Sicilian countryside, along with John Gambino, and the next morning, Gambino holds him up while Michele Crimi shoots him in the leg. This is purely for persuasive impact and probably the craziest part of the entire affair. Sindona has by this point completely exhausted his options. He's staging his own kidnapping while threatening Cuccia, blackmailing Calvi, and trying to shake down any of the associates he can think of. Everything is riding on a final move. John Gambino goes to Milan on October 2nd and sends a letter to Guzzi, telling him to meet the kidnappers in Vienna. After that, he personally launches another arson attack against Cuccia's house and then goes back to Palermo on October 6th. However, the letter doesn't arrive at Gucci's place in time, and the would-be kidnappers tell him by phone they're going to send someone soon to deliver the message in person. The cops, of course, have been surveilling this place and intercept the letter carrier, one of Gambino's cousins, a guy named Vincenzo Spatola. Sindona realizes that the game is basically up So he flies back to New York City on October 9th on a fake passport. He tries to lay low, but this is Michele Sindona we're talking about. And he ends up getting popped on October 16th, 1979. Sindona and his associates will have a couple more cards to play as 1980 comes around. But Michele Sindona's days of freedom are effectively over. And with that, I'm going to wrap up the episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been the Years of Lead Pod, and I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross.